Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Freightstar. I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Freightstar for sponsoring today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at Freightstar.com. That's F-R, numeral 8, S-T-A-R.com. Gary Zimmer is known as the father of biological farming, a system in which farmers work hand-in-hand with nature to create healthy mineralized soils to produce pest and disease-resistant crops while reducing chemical inputs. Zimmer operates Otter Creek Organic Farm in southwestern Wisconsin following a rotation of one year of corn and one year of soil building using a cover crop of cereal rye, alfalfa, and four types of clover. Zimmer also co-founded Midwestern BioAg, a company specializing in advancing the biological farming methods he developed. In addition, he manages the organic farmland at Taliesin, the estate of American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, I met up with Gary on the Taliesin grounds, where he talked about his system of biological farming. He explains that while he's not a strict no-tiller, he does limit the amount and type of tillage he does so as to avoid disturbing what he calls the middle zone, where most root growth takes place. He explains why he focuses on soil building before anything else, how feeding soils is rather like feeding cows, the differences between green carbon and brown carbon, why it's important to use neutral pH fertilizers, and much more. I have been a, a bit critical in my career no-till because I said, why would not doing something make my life better? Unless that's smoking or drinking. Tell me why that makes my life better. I said, I got a job to do. And my job is to get these soils healthy and mineralized. And why would I till if I don't have to? But why would till be my priority? Why wouldn't healthy mineralized soils be my priority? And then tillage is one of the practices I could get rid of once I got it working. And as wet as it's been the last couple of years, I'm sorry, you cut ruts this deep in the ground, what are you going to do? The other thing is that you've got rules, you got to get rid of crust. You can't have a crust on the ground. Corn bean guys struggle with crust on top of the ground because they only have things in rows. They don't have a solid seed in anything. And the other thing is that they're all out doing this tillage on bare ground. Mm-hmm. See, we ran rotivators for years and I got really criticized. All oh, rotivators destroy soils. I said, not unless the soil is bare, you'd never take them on bare ground. Crazy. They just pulverize it. They just destroy it. But if you've got the blades hitting residues, I had a field days for 25 years on my farm. It was raining and it was muddy and we had a lot of people there that year because they couldn't be out in the fields. And I wanted to demonstrate a cover crop. We took the rotivator and water was flying out of the back end of the rotivator. And about a week later, I was like walking on a six inch plush carpet because those blades weren't hitting the dirt. They were hitting the residues. And then they get kind of pushed that down. You're mixing organic matter with soil. Like here now, this here, this farm is really radically different than most. We're organic, but uh, uh, we're actually corn growers, if you want to think about it. We got, well, I think it's 150 acres of seed corn this year because we have to have isolated fields. And last year we had 250 acres of seed corn. Uh, then we have sweet corn across the road, and then we do grain corn. And then spring green fills organic eggs is at right north of town. And we get a thousand tons of manure from them, and we Tell them 80,000 bushel of corn. We got a really good market right next door and we trade manure and it's really a nice relationship. I've been doing it for 20 years. So we looked at all these kind of things and my son, who's now 41 years old, 
is pretty well convinced these weather patterns are here to stay. We're not going back to the old days, whatever that was. And so we quit growing soybeans and, and uh, we have a dairy herd yet. And that's why I do some bales. Uh, our dairy herd is all forages, no grain. And, uh, and we drive in the summertime. So they all fall calf. We farm in a 35 mile circle, 1500 acres. But uh, so anyway, we make baleage. And so uh, I did all the math on it. Our dairy herd says, we just do things quite different than most, but we milk once a day. We feed all forages and we dry them all up in the summertime. It's a three quarter time job milking a hundred cows for two people. And it should be a $75,000 income per person. There's three times more money taking that bale and running it through a milk cow than there is running through a beef cow. And so August 15th, we start to calve and we'll have a hundred cows calving between then and the 1st of October. It's pure hell around here for six weeks. And then we, get, we raised 25 replacement heifers, the first 25 born. And then by Thanksgiving, the calves are all weaned. And so now they start at six in the morning and by nine they're done for the day. Cows are all milked, animals are all fed, calves are all done. And so, and then come June 15th, now they're all dry. You have two months off. So it's not a bad job milking cows because you're only doing it once a day. My daughter and her, you know, we're trying to have it so you can actually make a living and turn forages into milk because there's money turning forages into milk. Now, we're not on a grass-fed truck yet. Now, that's the only thing growing in organic on the milk market is all grass-fed. Consumers are asking questions, and, and I was really, it's really a good story because when I was a kid, it wasn't organic. We all just kind of farmed. And then all of a sudden, organic is distinctly different today because how we farm is today, and I got big mega farms with 10,000 cows and fed 80% corn silage and commodity feeds and given a bunch of shots. Not so much to get milk, but to get them bread. There's not a single cow gets bred on a large farm without getting hormone shots. My cousin's a veterinarian, and he said, how do you think we determine how much hormone to give the cow? By measuring how much comes through the milk. So this is all reproductive hormones. We wonder why people are developing weird, and we got weird stuff going on. So years ago, the conventional farms were 75, 80 cow, 50 cow dairy farms all over this countryside, like the Mennonite and Amish are still left doing. And uh, then organic studies, and he said, well, you guys think your milk is better than mine. Tell me what's different. I said, well, not a hell of a lot. They didn't farm much different than the organic guys. You know, we fed a lot of forages. We fed a small amount of grain. And they pastured just kind of way they did things in the old days. There wasn't a great deal of difference. Then the big mega farms came along. There was a huge difference. So Organic Valley, then uh, the, the, the regular farm that wasn't organic, he always complained to Organic Valley. And he said, you know, and he had an argument, a good argument, because the milk wasn't greatly different. But now it's totally different. But now the grass fed. So the within Organic Valley, there's a battle going on. Us grass-fed guys, uh, they get offended by us. They said, you think your milk is better? And I said, yes, and you did all the research to prove it. The fatty acids are totally different. The vitamins and minerals and the beta carotene are totally different. That's the only thing that's growing in organic. On the East Coast, it's going kind of wild, grass-fed. It's hard to do, you know. Just like if you're feeding an animal to get production, energy is always short. Well, so we're going to grow super-quality forages, to get it the kind of feed that would get them to, so highly digestible, uh, it's got too much protein in it. So now we're short of energy and high on protein. If you let it get more rank, then it gets too complex to digest and they still don't get enough energy and now the protein drops and digestibility drops. So anyway, the grass-fed market, I think, is going to continue to grow. So that's why we're just looking at turning forages into it. See, so I'm a dairy nutritionist by training. As a dairy nutrition guy, I got into this high forage and what's, what's, what's a cow made to do? What's, what's, you know, what's not violate the principles of the earth kind of a thing. And just like what we do with chemistries and all those things, you can't, 
it's hard to know what is what is Roundup done to our food chain, what is Roundup done to our biology and our soil, not just Roundup, but that's what really changed agriculture and it made farming kind of what it is today. So anyway, as a dairy guy, I got into the soils thing and I'm self-taught in soils. I've written three books on it. Everybody thinks I'm a soils guy, but I'm really a dairy guy, but there's not much different. In the cow, we call it digestion. And then, and then we talk about giving them feed in the soil, it's residues. And it's still gotta be rotted down and there's still a biological system and there's still minerals involved. And see, 45 years ago in Minnesota, I came from southeastern Minnesota, I worked with the highest producing herd in, in, in Winona County. At that time, we were 45 pounds of milk in the bulk tank. And you put up two new harvesters and that's how I got into looking at better at soils. And, and, and the word digestibility came along. Today, that same farm is 100 pounds of milk a day. They don't farm back what they do 50 years ago. We made dry hay, fed them cob corn, some corn silage, and fed a little dicale and trace mineral salt. You, there's not a single dairyman that does that anymore. So now, of course, you went to haylage. Harvester really changed agriculture because you couldn't spend a lot of money fed silage, you better learn how to farm differently. What they didn't teach them is how to make money. They taught them how to make better quality feed, but didn't teach them how to make money. And so these guys, what did they do to go from 45 pounds of milk to 100? Well, TMRs, mix it all together. Maximum efficiency. Seven different types of commodities and feeds and chelated trace minerals and bypass proteins and direct fed microbials and the list goes on and on and on. Let's go back 40 years ago on the soils. What did we do? Cheaper source of N, P, and K, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash and lime to a 6.5 pH. What's different today? Nothing. So anyway, as I got more and more involved in farming as a dairy industry, it all started about growing super quality feed for dairy cows. And what we did was back in the 90s, I had a bunch of consultants and students and we're doing trials all over. And we put some calcium and some sulfur and some trace minerals on a hay field and the feed test changed. I spent nine years at that university. Whatever the farmer grew for hay, I took it and tested it. Whatever short I added, it was too much, I tried to dilute it down. No one ever said to me, why don't you change the hay? So Midwestern Bioag, my company, deserves credit for we're the ones that took dairy nutrition to the soils. What happened in that little trial was we raised the mineral content of alfalfa by 45%. Now, I don't know if you take mineral supplements or not. I think it's a mistake probably if you don't, unless you know where your food comes from. If you grow all your own food and you do a really good job and you get mineral rich and it's fresh, you probably don't need to take supplements. We don't live that way very many of us anymore. We travel and we eat what comes out of a box somewhere and God knows how they raised it and what's all in it. So on the dairy herd, uh, if I can raise the mineral content of that forage, and improve the digestibility of that feed because the cow's got to break it down and get the nutrients back out of it. And what's in that high digestible feed, 95% of it the animal can use. What's in that little stones that we give her, she can get 45%. As a dairy nutritionist, they all balance rations with the same numbers. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The stuff in the hay is 95% is digestible. And, and so a lot of these cows are way overfed on mineral. The average cow gets a pound and a half of mineral a day. Stones. Now, First, if you ever have to, one dies, you post it, there's a bunch of rocks in the bottom of her gut. You know, it's just, it's a lot of calcium, a lot of stones. Corn salad doesn't have any minerals in it. And so that was why we started cheating on rations, telling the farmers, now if you get, once you get these mineralized forages, you don't need to supplement as many minerals. There's a movement going on in the dairy world, nothing but a, a Redmond natural sea salt from Emory, Utah, some conditioner, a betonite, some conditioners, and that's it, and forages, no other minerals. It'd be no different than how many Americans don't take any minerals. But if you eat really good, you can make it work. So anyway, that was why, so this balancing ration things, we still do a lot of dairy nutrition work. I kind of work with that at BioAg about high forage diets and still trying to get, it's still the most profitable way to farm is getting, is 
growing it, not buying it. So when you're talking about adjusting the nutrient of the, the forage, is that the genetics of the plant? Or no, the, the genetics play a role. Now we did Cal West at West Salem, Wisconsin, was, in, was now owned by Alpharex, which is uh, DuPont. It used to be Cal West, California Western Alfalfa Breeders. And about 25 years ago, they pulled up to me and they said, would you sell our alfalfa seed? And I said, well, tell me why. I said, grown on commercial fertilizers and conventional. I said, it fits probably a conventional farm, but why would it fit what we do? We put on calcium and trace minerals and we fertilize differently. We put on a lot of sulfur. And I look for several things in hay, the nitrogen to sulfur ratio, the mineral balance. And I want high phosphorus uptakes and I got certain things that make quality and then high digestible. So they gave me, Dr. David Johnson was a plant breeder, this is 25 years ago, they gave me a section of land and I put in 64 varieties of alfalfa. And the one that won was a ton more dry matter per acre on our fertilizer program. And it won in Pennsylvania and northern Minnesota. And I said to the plant breeder, well, why is it winning in Pennsylvania and, 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 and northern Minnesota? And he said, I have no idea. And I said, you know what they got in common? High calcium soils. This alfalfa loves calcium. And so if we put on extra calcium, just like uh, you talked about genetics, the uh, multi-leafed alfalfa, it's an expression from 90 to 45 percent multi-leaf. It doesn't multi-leaf, just like an animal having twins. If she's under a lot of stress, her number of pigs in the litter aren't going to happen if that animal's really sick and under stress. Because Mother Nature's not stupid. Why would you give me 15 babies and I can't raise 15 babies? What's no Why would this plant do multi-leaf if it doesn't have the nutrition to do it? So we've taken multi-leaf alfalfa and got those ratios up to 95% because then the leaves and those little fine stems where our digestibility took place. So I've been breeding alfalfas for 25 years through Cal West. Now we still buy from them, but DuPont bought it. David Johnson, they sent him an email and they said to him, here's your spraying schedule for the year on your alfalfa. He said, I haven't sprayed in five years. What's, what, what's, what's my reason? Well, DuPont just bought it. We hadn't sprayed insecticides, fungicides, herbicides, nothing on that research fund for five years. Just balanced fertility and incredible crops and up to 12 tons of dry matter alfalfa per acre when our state average is five or six. Yeah, at that breeding station. They got records of over 10 tons an acre. So genetics is a part of it. It's just like excessive tillage is a part of destruction. It's not the whole game. There's more to the game than that. We got to create an ideal home. We got to feed the soil life. And what insecticides, fungicides, pesticides, and biotechnology do to my soil life? We don't know those things necessarily. We assume it's not good. And so uh, anyway, so as a dairy nutritionist, when we started growing these super quality forages, we took that same concept. That's how I do soils. I treat those soils like you're going to treat a cow. A couple years ago, Penn State had a field days, and we get certain things hung up in our head, and we can't get them out. Nitrogen credits. If we take a look at when Penn State was doing this alfalfa, they were out there and the hairy vetch was all headed out, all blasting out, and they had young succulent clover, and they had cornfields. They had pictures out in front of what they did. And they said, this has got the most nitrogen credits, the corn is yellow and sick. It's on the organic farm at Penn State. And over here, we took the clover down, it was bright, dark, green, and beautiful. And they said, we don't understand what's going on. We got the most nitrogen credits here. And I said, digestibility. You don't feed a cow an old rank headed out alfalfa and expect it to milk. It might be a lot of pounds of nitrogen there, but you can't get them back out. Mm. So I was out in Michigan with Richard Stuckey a, was a professor out in central Michigan. He's still 94 and farming yet, by the way. Wow. He his lands in Alma, Michigan, right in the, in the center of Walmart and people all around. He still farms his 80 acres in downtown Alma, Michigan. Yeah. Oh God, he's except when he went there, he got into carbon sequestering. And he said to me, he said, I want to show you my brown carbon. 
boom, the light bulb went on. Green carbon, brown carbon, the corn stalks, and black carbon, the humus. Once it's stabilized and broke down, it's kind of black and it's stable. Green feeds a different organism than the brown. Everybody if you want to raise organic matter, you got to give them brown carbon. So it's not about nitrogen credits. I tell people, uh, if you know um, Jerry Hatfield, USDA researcher, he's retiring now. I sat in his office and I said, I don't care if it's a legume, I don't care if it's a grass. They both provide nitrogen because they feed bacteria. And uh, he says, yeah, you're just scrounging it. So I grew six grass crops in a row. And it was dark green. It was level, uniform green. Usually you could see where a cow pie would be. Six grass crops in a row, no need for nitrogen. He said, oh. he finally, him and Christine Jones out of Australia, they finally said, I think you're right. Because you build up an organism after a while that starts producing it, but we're feeding bacteria. And that's why I took 20 years to raise the organic matter, 1% on this farm. Organic matter is not a very good measurement of anything. It's just measuring undecayed residues and color. It doesn't measure the function of the biology in the soil. And with complex carbons, and the other thing right back, we had that dairy herder making five cuttings of hay a year in a real tight rotation, taking off the corn silage, took all the straw off, all the corn stalks that we did combine corn for feed, all the corn stalks came back for bedding. All the straw came back off the farm for bedding. We had composted bedding packs, so no complex carbon stayed out in the field. So 20 years later, organic matter is up 1%. And someone said, man, that's pretty lousy. And I said, yeah, but we didn't feed the organisms that build organic matter. We grew incredible crops. We kept it bacteria dominated. That young green succulent rye out here, that right now is full of nitrogen. You feed it to a cow and they'll squirt. It's high, high digestible, high nitrogen. And so it feeds bacteria and a bacteria got a five to one carbon to nitrogen ratio. Now, if I put the complex stalks in the ground, what are they, 20 to 30 to one carbon to nitrogen ratio and the fungus eat them. And they got a 20 to 31 ratio. So the bacteria only live a short period of time. If I worked that, we worked that in the ground, you came back in 10 days, you won't know what the crap was. So this word digestibility, so if we say bacteria dominant, I don't care, we just turn rye down on the home farm that we're gonna plant corn. And they say, you can't put rye in front of corn. Well, you only get it this big. And you got to make sure it's highly digestible. It's already going to be dissolved down by the end of corn feed. And it feeds bacteria. It doesn't feed fungal. Fungal population puts a drag on things. But you can build organic matter. How long do those residues take to break down? That's why people put nitrogen and things on it, try to balance the carbon-nitrogen ratios. We manage bacteria and biology. So not only that, for years and years and years, and nobody, I don't think, ever got this. I kept saying... We don't have very many earthworms. And they said, wow, you're telling it too much? I said, no, no, we're not feeding them. What do they eat? They don't eat that young succulent stuff. The bacteria eat that. They eat the complex carbons, the corn stalks, the leaves, the residues, organic matter. That's why you put them around a bale of manure. You put them all, what do they eat? I said, we're not feeding them because old Carrie Reams, you know Carrie Reams was? Uh, Egg Energies, uh, Carrie Reams and Dan Scow, they worked with biodynamics and Carrie Williams was a doctor out of Florida. Him and Dr. Albrecht, some of the, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, biological farming was really on a roll. Then chemicals came along and it got set on the back burner for 50 years. But he kept saying, if you really truly have a biologically active cell, you won't have earthworms. And everybody kind of booed him and laughed at him, but God dang, I think he was right. And so now we completely changed our farm. We don't take off any corn stalks. We only milk 100 cows. And we take our hay off of certain fields, and most of that, where we make hay, we leave it close to home because we don't want, if we got manure to haul. 
back. I don't want to haul manure. And so, uh, so anyway, all the straw stays. When this rye is combined this summer, the straw stays. The corn stalks there from last year. Now we got all this complex carbon. What do you think is happening? Earthworm populations are growing and our organic matter is going to go up. Because now we're farming for that. What are you farming for? I was at a guy that's got 500 acres of hemp. And he's asking me about growing corn. And he's got a thousand acre farm. And I said, ah, uh, I'm confused. If you're going to make $20,000 or $30,000 or $50,000 an acre growing hemp, why are you pissing around with corn and beans? Why don't you take one year soil building and one year hemp? Why don't you spend that year putting in cover crops and minerals and putting on manure and getting it ready? Vegetable producers do this all the time. In Washington, D.C., there's, uh, there's Potomac Farms. 50 acres of vegetables, that's a million dollar CSA. 25 acres getting ready to farm and 25 acres farming. Okay. It's too damn much work. And vegetables are hard on soils. You're putting radishes, then you till it and you plant this, then you do that, and that, and it's a lot of tillage. It beats up soil for that year, but you gotta give it a rest in the next year. If I was gonna do hemp at $20,000 an there's no damn way I'd do a corner my rotation. So we've looked at all these things when we take on this new land, like I, we just took some on over by us, three to five hundred dollars an acre on fertilizer, in two years to get it organic, and for two years nothing but cover crops and minerals and getting those minerals in a carbon biological cycle. So we might have five to seven hundred dollars an acre in it before we start to farm it. Uh -huh. But then we've already fixed it, and from now on we can grow bumper crops with just a small amount of inputs. You see, if you don't ever fix it, you struggle to get a halfway decent crop and the weeds take over and you get a poor crop and you don't have any money. If you just bite the bullet and fix it, now every land doesn't need to be fixed. I said, the farm I tell guys that you want to buy, you got to buy the farm from the dairyman that went broke by buying too much fertilizer. That's the farm you need to buy. <laughs> and now just grow cover crop. Oh, all you do is bring out healthy. Already got lots of minerals. Yeah. So this farm right here, we make money growing corn. This is a kind of a year off. Someone says, well, you aren't going to make any money in that rye. And I said, no, you got to look at the system. We're one year corn, one year soil building, one year corn, one year soil building, and we combine rye if there's some to combine. That crop fails, we don't care. So I got the grain elevator, so we got a cleaner. So what about, we got about five, six hundred acres of rye this year, just like this. Now, about a third of it following sweet corn and seed corn got planted in October. The rest of it got planted, this got planted in December. And what do you see down below? Lots of cold and lots of alfalfa. So, this was then last fall. We came out here and took the fertilizer spreader, and we, we normally seed a bushel and a half where we drill it in, which we prefer. This is three bushel an acre, just bulk spread. And then we came in March. My son can do 250 acres in a forenoon with a four wheeler and a cedar on back or side by side, puts the it holds about 500 pounds of seed, 25 miles an hour flying across these fields, spinning the seed on in March on frozen ground. And that's kind of what you get, clover, alfalfa. There's four different varieties of clover in here, and then there's alfalfa. So they also put on in March, and the rye was put on in December. Now the other fields were done drilled in, and that was planted in October, the rye was. But it was done on the same concept. We don't make any money on rye anymore. 40 bushel an acre and $10 a bushel is $400 an acre. But we, Rye is just something in to give us this cover crop to give us our nutrients to grow corn. We grow seed corn. We make a lot of money growing seed corn. We get the first contracts. Right? So we have those guys. We have our target average on seed corn is 40 bushel, of which we get about $2,000 an acre. And they bring the seed and they harvest it. We got to cultivate and plant and all these kind of things and detassel it. But anything over 40 bushel, we get another $40 a bushel. Last year we had some 70 bushel, some 84 bushel corn. 
Now you can put a pencil that sucker all day long. So so anyway, that this is uh, how we farm, and this will be seed corn next year, and we can probably net two thousand dollars an acre on it. And this year we probably won't make any money. You divide that out, two thousand next year, maybe less even conventional corn, two hundred bushel corn, and we get ten dollars or nine dollars a bushel. You know, eighteen hundred dollars an acre, and this year we get four hundred. It's twenty-two hundred dollars over two years, eleven hundred dollars a year, and now we got our expenses. We have nothing in this except seed. Now, someone said, "Well, that clover seed? Yeah, we get forty dollars an acre in clover seed. We spend on average forty dollars an acre for seed, cover crop seed, and everything else." And I said, "That's our fertilizer. That's our whole fertilizer budget." So that's why this year now, when the rye is combined, all the straw and everything will stay here. Whatever rye seed we get, we take down. To, we use. We need about quite a bit ourselves because we have six, seven hundred acres of rye. So we need a couple thousand bushels ourselves, and then uh, we'll flail mow this down to make sure no weeds go to seed. And then last fall, there'll be weeds in it, but see, it's in August we flail mow it, so the weeds aren't going to be going to seed. They freeze. You'll see them out in here, some weeds that make no seeds in them, and the clover and the alfalfa will be this tall. So now we're feeding earthworms, and now we got all these reservoirs, and now our organic matter increase. And see, what are the rules to soil health? First, you got to feed and create living roots in the soil. Look around. That's what this farm is. Then you got to feed them. You can't. You can't have just corn stalks and soybean stuff. Well, my gosh, you're, you're gonna get bacteria fed, and then you, and then and a lot of guys aren't no-tilling because you get such a crust on top. They just got to breathe. Those are living live organisms. They got to breathe. That's why all the residues shallowly worked in. We're real believers in shallow incorporating residues. That's what all these tools are meant to do. And I don't mind cutting a slot to make sure that because I can't let it get waterlogged because they drowned. And then we run big deep rippers. Our rippers just cut a slot. We go down 13 to 15 inches deep with these tines. It just looks like they cut a slot in the ground and they're 20 inches apart and they pick it up. So what the no-till guy taught us is you can't plow, dig, and disc every year, every acre, you'll destroy soils. But that's extreme. What the strip-till guys, because the no-till guys, a lot of guys failed doing that because they, they weren't ready. You got to earn the right not to till. You just can't stop tillage for crying out loud. You know what failure looks like? Your ground is hard and dead as my driveway, and you're going to quit tillage? That's the last thing you need to do. Why don't you feed and get your saw right first and then quit tillage? So the strip till guys, they taught us it's 10 degrees warmer in that little strip, but in that zone, the soil warrior. Are you familiar with the soil warrior? That was developed by one of my customer friends from Minnesota, Mark Bauer. Fairmont, Minnesota, built that. And he used to run away. Ray Rawson's a good friend of mine, the Rawson strip till guys. Okay. I got to know all those guys really well. But anyway, Mark had stones at Fairmont, Minnesota. So he built that rolling blades and tines. And even though they got little fingers on them, that was all designed with John Deere equipment. He couldn't afford to take it to market. He had to sell the company. Environmental Technologies bought it. And it had those rolling blades so it didn't rip up stones. And it had containment blades on the outside. You could take your penetrometer and boy, it made a huge difference on getting roots there. So the, the strip till guys said, uh, you gotta have, you gotta be able to grow deep roots and don't you dare tear up middle zone. You know, you want to the top two or three inches. But middle zone, all the decaying roots in the earthworm channels is, so chisel plowing does as much damage as moldboard plowing. And they say, oh, I chiseled and I did no till, but see, both of them tear up middle zone. Leave the damn middle zone alone. But that's bones rots here. You know anything you want to the top two or three inches. Put all those residues in there, make sure it can breathe, water soaks in, and all those kind of things take place out here. And then the little earthworm channels and the dead decaying roots are tubes for the roots to go down. Well, the tiller radish out here, that's you know, Steve Groff, they did a measurement, a half-inch circle around that root is really high in nutrients because it the plant takes half its photosynthesis and feeds the bacteria. And then when that spews out, guess where they live? Right around the roots. 
So now if your next crop is going down that, and the earthworm channel is what, seven times higher in phosphorus, 11 times higher in potassium than the ground ate its way through. So if that root can go down a earthworm casting or down a different decay root, it's tapped into a different soil than your soil test says you got. They're not the same. See, that's why he mix it all together. What's homogenized out here? Uh -huh. I, I see, I went, uh, I'm a dairy guy, and these guys in Arizona sent me a salt test, and it was 14% sodium. And I said, you can't grow alfalfa, and it's 14% sodium. And then I stood in the alfalfa field. It was really, really nice alfalfa. Uh -huh. Then I went to Philip Brock's at the university here in Madison. He's a quite an interesting character. We do work with him. So I went to Phil, and I said, gosh, how is he? He said, he started laughing. He said, what do you think that soil is? Homogenized? It hasn't gone through a blender. There's spots in that soil where there's probably 25% sodium and there's spots that there's 1% sodium. So he said, the roots dodge the 25% and they grow where the one is. So they're not growing in a 14% sodium soil. They, yeah, that's stupid. It's not a homogenized mix. Yeah, you think about that. So we, we do our subsoiling in August, September. If it needs to be ripped with that big deep ripper to make sure we got water infiltrate so water standing is a problem because then it's not soaking in yeah. in some years if it's too dry or too wet it doesn't work it's got to get the right conditions yeah. it's like taking a knife through butter if it's liquid you didn't do anything uh -huh. and if it's really hard you didn't do anything either because you had to pull it back up because you couldn't get it in it was frozen no it's hard but if it's the right conditions you want to get a little bit of sidewall compaction otherwise in the middle of a drought ground gets cracks in it is that subsoiling absolutely not the minute it gets wet Glues it right back like it was. Mm -hmm. You got to get a little sidewall compaction, and the secret is to get roots to grow down here. And that's what the strip till guys, in the beginning, those strip till guys put nitrogen down 15 inches deep to get the roots to grow. What stops roots? Soluble fertilizer. And of course, uh, that's why the farmers used to say you, in the spring, if you're planting dust in the fall, your bins will bust. A lot of guys planted in dust this spring, which was kind of nice for them. So the, uh, moisture has an impact on soluble nutrients. You put your fertilizer in that and deep, you'll drive those roots down. Once you get those roots down in there, like I said, you leave them alone. So anyway, so that's why we look at this whole thing here as, as, a, as our rotation system. Now, normally we'd have taken this here, we'd have grown corn next year, then we'd have grown soybeans, then maybe we'd have gone back into whatever. So the soybeans are gone because it's too hard to control weeds. Mm. And uh, I'm letting those weeds go to see in giant ragweed, such an issue that, that just we take on farms. I tell you, I said, oh my gosh, it was stripped on that side of the road. And it was the most giant ragweed in any farm I've ever seen in my life. Between the strips, they just let her all go to seeds. Oh, we got a seed bank you can't look over. We pull the giant ragweed out of the seed corn because seed corn can't compete against anything. We'll get back to Gary Zimmer in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for supporting today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at Freightstar.com. That's F-R numeral 8 S-T-A-R dot com. Now let's get back to Gary Zimmer as he explains why roller crimping is not always successful and the importance of trace minerals. Now this rye is further along. Now this would have been drilled in after uh, sweet corn. This here, you see, if this doesn't lodge on us, and if that's why if we go back in here in the fall, whatever lodge, every bad spots here, he'll bring his big drill in here, then we put tiller radish in it, and we may rip it first, depends on what it is. So our first years of rolling and crimping, we'd run into a field like this, we went to head out, we rolled it, and it failed. It's not thick enough. We don't really want to roll and crimp it. We want the clover and the underseeding. 
So we'll get 40 bushel rye, that's fine. We don't really care. If we don't get any, we don't care. Uh, we just gotta have something in here and it's nice to have living roots in the soil and what it does to the soil is good. So if we wanted to roll and crimp it, we gotta have it twice as thick and then let it get up here. And then you gotta have a mat on the ground. So when you say it failed, the weeds would come up to it. There's nobody that rolls and crimps that does not admit that it takes 10 bushel off your yield on beans. I had a side-by-side -side comparison. Under irrigation on light soil, I rolled half of it, and then we had the guys walk it. We pulled a giant ragweed, and uh, we put more dollars in walking the rolled and crimped, and it was 10 bushel less. And ten dollars a twenty dollars a bushel and ten bushels two hundred dollars an acre. I said to the guys, we cultivated it twice. What would you rather do, roll it and crimp it, or just cultivate it twice? Not that they haven't had successes. And we had one year ourselves. We had a pretty good crop, but it was fifty-five bushel beans. And where we tilled it and worked the cover crop in, when it gets about this tall, we let the rye, we let the rye get to heading out before we till it in, because we want the rye to steal all the nutrients from the weeds and then I'll get better nodulation on the rye. So if this was gonna be a cornfield, this would already have been down. It's, 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 it's the right stage right now. Don't get any more, more mature than this. It'll only rob from your corn. You gotta keep it highly digestible. If it's gonna be soybeans, we'll let it head out. And then when we work it back in the ground, well, it looks like a straw out here. It all dries down, but you know, it's so fluffy. And we have row cleaners on the plant that we plant in furrows. You can't plant in all those residues I'm talking about. So we push it inside, and so if you plant down in a furrow, and when you rotary hoe and cultivate, it's easier to, if you start level, when you bury weeds, you gotta hill everything. If you start in a furrow, things can roll, and it's easier to do weed control. So that's why we plant in furrows. So we got row cleaners on. What happened was I had a farm manager here that we first started here in Nebraska. It was really dry spring, and I was out to plant, and he said, no, you don't. He said, you can't plant in dust. He said, you've got to plant in moisture. I had row cleaners on my plant, and we dropped it down to plant it in moisture, because otherwise he said it won't come up. In Nebraska, it might not rain for three weeks. Then what are you going to have? You never plant in dry soil. He said, you plant in moisture. What? Then I had my row cleaner thing set up, so then that's how we started Figuring, wow, I can go through here rye residue just a six. Someone said you gotta wait a week after you take the rye down before you plant this. How about three hours? Drop right in the right in the same field they're taking it down and push it out of the way and plant. It's like planting in fresh, clean ground. There's no fresh weed seeds down in there, and, and you got the rye out of the way. So it looks kind of weird when we go to the plant because we got these big furrows out all across our field. That's why we were 38 inch rows, and now we went to 30 because 38 you gotta have room for all this stuff. We got buffalo cultivators. That's why I'm designing a cultivator to kind of handle some of these things that we're talking about. I was down to Iowa yesterday, that was when I was down, I got this weed slayer, you mentioned my organic herbicide. It's called Weed Slayer and uh, it comes out of Florida. It's eugenol oil, which was clover thyme, and then it's got a biological, it's got four parts to it. It's got a surfactant, a wetting agent, a translocator, kind of a compound that's made by Koch brothers, I think. It's organic. And then this guy, we take citric acid and make the tank mix acidic. And then we go out there. It kills it to the roots. It kills things. It's, it's, it's organic Roundup. Now, cost-wise, it's going to be $75 an acre. But these guys can go to my friend in Iowa. He's got oats, but his oats isn't thick enough and big enough either. I want his oats to be really thick and then spray it and then no-till right into it. Everything would be, anything that's in here would be dead. He's going to no-till. He's going to drill the beans, but the corn he's going to go in 30-inch rows. I said, guess this, I don't think you have a good enough oat crop. I kept telling you, you don't have a good enough oat crop. Let it get bigger. It's been just too cold of a spring to have that oats. ought to be thick as hair in a dog. Years ago, I tell people, it was one of the practices, how we learn things. These farmers in Minnesota, I was at a meeting and I told them, I said, I love to plant oats early spring. 
And I said, now, I said, you know, I, I like oats and red clover because I said, I, I, I don't, I'm a tight old German. I don't like to spend over $10 an acre. They thought I said, put on 10 bushel of oats, not $10 an acre. They were organic, but oats a dollar and a half a bushel conventional at the time. So they put on 10 bushel oats oh, wow. in the spring and then took it down and planted soybeans. And the best practice they ever brought to their farm. It's that guy in Iowa, yes, he put six bushel of oats. You get that oats sticking, get like your lawn. And that's what rolling and crimping needs. And see, now can I go in there and burn it? Because oats aren't going to die, but I could burn it with my herbicide. It kills grasses really fast, and the broadleaves might take a month. But they all die, and the roots die. I'm doing, I'm on 10 farms. I got some clover crops. Now. I got a spot that was, uh, uh, it's really thick clover, really thick alfalfa, just like, just thick as, thick as the hay fields get. And I'm going to spray that, and we're going to no-till corn into it. It's only going to be four or five acres. I got another guy that, conventional farmer and he's getting this organic and so he put on he put out 15 or 16 pounds of red clover seed and i said really i don't know if you know you no know, alfalfa we do 15 16 pounds an acre with red clover how about eight oh, or six okay. Okay. so but he said i didn't know i could i i i, I just did like alfalfa i said oh my god you ought to see it it's just it's just like his lawn i said perfect let's spray it with our riverside and no-till into it because you got it thick enough so if it takes 15 bushels, we're trying to figure out rates and where I spray it. I got thistles and quackgrass. It kills quackgrass, just really wipes it out. We got, we're in a village of Lone Rock and a village of Avoca because they don't like to spray around it because of the kids and the fence and all these kind of stuff. So they're trying out for us. I got the city of Madison Parks Department is testing it out this year. And I got a couple guys in Iowa doing it. So we're going to do the, the that parts of it. And then this uh, on this oats plant in the springtime, they use it. And then I got an old sod field on hillsides. We're going to try to spray the herbicide and then no so how long it. has this product been available this it's is... been around for a few years i think it's almost like what's happened is we had a guy hired steve slater he was a professor at the university he's the one who did those genome studies with me he's out in vancouver now and he's working with uh, neem oil you know, you know neem oil is very very good insecticide but it's expensive and it's hit and miss okay. so what this he works for is a pharmaceutical company okay. they're taking neem oil and they're making pharmaceutical, they're going to deliver it to where it does its action. And they're going to change compounds. So clove oil has been around forever as a herbicide. But it was 80% concentration and it cost you $200 an acre to do it. So what this company's got now is they got it at this formula. So now it's only 3 to 4% mix in that solution of, of the eugenol oil, the clove oil. Yeah. And then it's got this biological and molasses and sugars. And then the, the thing that translocates these compounds throughout the plant. Uh -huh. And then it kills them right down to the root. It doesn't, that's not like vinegar. It doesn't burn them back. It yeah. kills them. So, so it's been the, around. What does the sugar do as part of that mix? Feeds the bacteria so they multiply and grow. So the bacteria is what's going to help translocate this down into the roots. Oh, it's a biological control as much as it is a chemical. The chemistry from the eugenol oil oh, okay. kills the roots thing. But we dug like, uh, I, I didn't start till last summer. That's how I got involved on guys out in Nebraska, I said, but I had Pennsylvania smart weed was so wet last year and it was all black, it all had the little heads on it and I sprayed it. It never ever set seed, but it, it never turned brown. It just got off color and it sat right there. That's a, that was the last day it grew. I said, ah, I don't care. Never set seed, but it pretty well will kill anything it touches. And, and then I was spraying around my fire pit and I had a tomato next to my fire pit and I was, and I saw it after I'm sprayed already. And I said, oh, I'll leave that. But I had already splashed about one third of an end of a leaf. Oh. It blossomed twice, never set a fruit, and never died. 
but oh. it never grew another inch. Now, someone said, what's it do to the soil biology? We don't really, biologically, they said just, they say nothing. But they've done research in Florida on it. And, and uh, yeah, these guys developed the pharmaceutical end of it. So they've been probably, I don't know if it's been four or five years, but they entered the Midwest a couple of years ago. And so I didn't, I got to know the guys and uh, they wanted uh, uh, me to take, see, I don't have, I never had the money to do research. I started this business back 40 years ago. So my research was the farmers. You know, I worked with, well, we still got about 4,000 farms. So I, in the beginning, I had three, 400 dairy when I worked myself. And I, some of these guys, you know, there's innovative farmers, there's guys that watch it happen, there's guys that wonder what happened. Some of these guys will just about do anything. I got a bunch of those right now. They'll try and test anything. Because they're, they're, like, they're always curious and they're always looking. And so I go out there and so I get a new idea, a new product. We'd go to 10 farms I would do and they'd try it out. Why did it work? What didn't work? What was good about it? What was bad about it? And so then after the 10 farms, it would still look like something we thought we could market. I'd go to 100 farms and then I'd get bigger data and then we'd start marketing it. And then, and then we do research because somebody wanted to see research, not because it was necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know right. how it is. Right. Yeah. So you're using some trace minerals and things like that, yeah. calcium. Yeah. So what happened way back years ago when I got involved in changing that alfalfa, uh, I looked at it and said, well, there's more to it than NPK and fertilizer. See, when my grandfather was a kid, well, farmed rather, he bought a fertilizer based on NPK of a 312.12. And then my dad got a 624.24. And then I got to buy a 923.30. So what do you think happened? We, the fertilizer sold on price and solubility. So we got these harsh soluble salts. It's more higher numbers. What grandpa had, had trace minerals and sulfur in a more natural mind and it wasn't all soluble on day one. I said the dumbest idea man ever came up and put the nutrients in solution and then put them on the land in May or April and wonder how they got in our water. Well, you put them in solution, man. What did you expect? Why wouldn't you time release it? So what's in here, like the cover crush, that's full of nutrients. I said, I did my test, it's not only 200 units and, but it's 50 of phosphorus, it's 175 of potash, whatever I measured in there last year. That's a time release fertilizer. And the higher the digestibility, the faster it releases. The roots and some things are gonna be slower. And so the fertilizer then, the sources I started questioning, and so instead of, uh, we use like, I, before organic was around, we, we still do, a, three quarters of my business is not organic, it's conventional. I work with some of the largest conventional farms in this countryside and the world. But, um, uh, so we would use ammonium sulfate instead of just straight anhydrous ammonia. We would take a, a urea and we add carbon to it, and we side dress that, we split our nitrogen out, so we aren't putting it on all up front. Mm -hmm. And so we try to get really efficient with nitrogen. Nitrogen and herbicides, insecticides, pesticides, I call them necessary evils because you need those things where the conventional farming works, but boy, they cause, they got side effects. They got side effects. So then, like for phosphorus, years ago, we had partial rock phosphorus, some really good sources of rock phosphorus. So we take, we use MAP instead of DAP. Now DAP was the cheapest, but MAP has got a lower pH. So instead of having your soil have a low pH, I want your fertilizer to have a low pH. So we control the pH, we add carbon to it. We choose different sources. Instead of potassium chloride, instead of putting salt on it, we use potassium sulfate. It's more than twice as expensive, but it's much more efficient and I need sulfur anyway. And then we use our calcium sources. See, instead of using a dolomitic lime, this land is already high in magnesium. We'd use a high calcium lime if it needs lime. That farm across the road had a five two pHs or four nine pHs. So we put just a ton of lime per acre. Now if you took the soil sample you sent in, they'd have said, oh, put five, six tons of lime on it. That's how I was trained and that was a mistake. We, we got burned on that one. 
See, if I take your soil, so let's get it up to 68 to 70% base saturation of calcium. And all of a sudden, I keep putting calcium on. All of a sudden, I reach 68 and I stop. Guess what happens? The numbers keep going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. That line's got little crystals that take 15 years to break down. Next thing you know, we're 85, 90% calcium. So now we're really cautious. I don't want to overdo calcium because we get protein manure. I'd rather put a little bit on every year, like my fertilizer. I, I want to get to a certain level of... Uh, numbers, everybody said, well, you work with that Albrecht, you're the soil balance guys. I said, no, no, we're all the same. Every soil app is exactly the same. Why do you take a soil test? To recognize excesses and deficiencies. So if every lab has got numbers that they go for that they'd like to target, the only difference is the University of Wisconsin lab or any other lab is they ignore the excesses and we don't. Because magnesium, high magnesium interferes with potassium. High magnesium tightens soil. So we would add what's short, and if we got too much of it, don't add any more. So soil testing is about making corrections and making sure you don't add something you already got too much of. The crop fertilizer that we put on as a starter fertilizers or foliars and all that, that's above and beyond what these soils can dish out. Mm -hmm. So that's quite separate. So the, like farmers out here, most of them at rent lands, all they're doing is crop fertilizer, putting on NPK and nitrogen, and then because this plant's so out of balance and they don't do the tracement. So now we would do... Uh, again, I manufacture trace minnows. Back 25 years ago, I bought a field of seed corn down in Iowa. I used to take the hand trace minnows and mix them in. Well, every four a little crystal of boron lays next to a seed corn, <laughs> it's going to turn it white and die. And copper does the same thing. So we make homogenized. Roysters in Madison used to be on the east side of Madison. And they, they made me homogenized fertilizers way back in the early 90s. And I took the fertilizers and we added the... Um, uh, humates, carbon source, and rock phosphates, and we made it acidic, and we put our tracement, it becomes a homogenized blend with a controlled pH and a carbon base. And that's how fertilizers in nature are delivered. So we take a look at the sources of nutrients, we take a look at a better balance of nutrients. So all we buy on our farm right now, um, still one of the reasons we're not in the government programs, because our phosphorus levels are double what, what normal people would have. That guy came up from Missouri, when I spoke in Madison, some professor guy, and he came out and he said, well, that's really ridiculous. Your high phosphorus levels, you're going to destroy the streams. I said, well, how does it get in the stream? Erosion. Why don't we stop erosion instead of worry about my phosphorus? If I, you come to this farm, if this phosphorus is getting in that stream, then I need to stop farming. But as long as phosphorus is very stable in the soil, it erodes off the ground. It doesn't leach out of the ground. Now, nitrogen leaches into your groundwater. You never heard of phosphorus leaching into your groundwater, did you? It erodes. So why don't we stop the erosion? And but we got 25 foot, 50 foot border all around this pond here of ryegrass. First of all, to keep the geese from destroying our crops, number one. Uh -huh. The other thing is that I don't want to be the guy that I'm in, a, I'm in the watershed district here and we, we got a DNR grant to monitor nutrients in the water. They better not come from this farm. And we use manures, which is another poultry manure, which is another soil release kind of a thing. And so our calcium sources, then we take burnt hydrated lime, we use gypsum, we got regular lime is for low pHs. Hydrated burnt lime is fertilizer. If you took rock phosphate and you treat it with ammonia, you make ammoniated phosphate. You made commercial fertilizer out of it. If I take lime and I burn it or treat it with acid, I make fertilizer calcium. Calcium nitrate, calcium chloride are commercial nitrogen sources, both that calcium lies talk with chlorides or nitrogen. So anyway, we take and, and uh, burn it. We get from burnt lime out of a cement kilns. And then we treat it and hydrate it with water. And it's, it's like fertilizer. It's really high soluble calcium because I want to get, I want to treat calcium like any other mineral. And then we use all sulfate trace minerals, but then we acidify the mix and we homogenize the mix. 
So this farm, once we get our phosphorus levels up, double to triple what the universities will recommend or, or, or government program will allow. But we're not in a government program. And so phosphorus is the good guy, not the bad guy. Phosphorus is, someone said, uh, they said, wow, there's no advantage to high phosphorus. I said, yeah, but you're using insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, and pesticides. What if you had to get your plant healthy and I did, took your insecticides, your biotechnology, and your fungicides away from you? How was your crop going to look? And did you realize this farm's organic? We don't use those things. I have never seen the need for an insecticide on this farm, and I've been on it for 20 years. Wow. Never, never saw a crop loss due to an insect damage or a fungal disease. The Experiment Station in Minnesota a few years ago, this professor, there was the young graduate student, her dad's a good friend of mine and consultant, and she was working as a graduate student, and we were doing aphids and soybeans. And we're standing out there, there's aphids all over the place, and he was saying that, well, we can get a resistant variety, but it only lasts a couple of years because only 85% of the plants are resistant to it. And so he said, bugs are still going to get some of them. 15% of the bugs are still going to be here and they're still going to get it. Well, then they get to multiply. So in three years, they're in the population. So we have to have a new variety. I said, wow, that sounds like job security to me. And I said to him, I stood out on a little wagon. I was quiet for a long time. Finally, I said to him, I said, every field around here, are they all wiped out with aphids and leafhoppers and spider mites? He said, no. He said, it misses some fields. I said, why do you think that is? He said, oh, I suppose they got healthier saw. And I said, case closed. Why don't we go after healthy saw and get rid of your selection? Why wouldn't we go that route? Now, trace minerals have a lot to do with that. Trace minerals are huge in the plant health and immune systems and functions. And of course, they're not in our food anymore. That's the issue. That's part of our troubles out here with food. See, we do a lot with trace minerals here. There's no question. Now, we have to take a soil sample because organic, we have to prove that we need them before we can put them on. I said, well, why wouldn't everybody do that? Why would you buy it if you don't need it? Why, why do you think we take a salt test? We try to identify what levels we have, but there's certain nutrients like boron and sulfur are anions and they leach and we, we never get rid of those. I've been working with a boron source out of Hungary. That's a calcium borate instead of sodium borate. Trying to get a more stable boron source because boron leaches too easily. So that's why we choose sources. We watch the soluble to soil release. We use some rock phosphate, some MAP because MAP's got a lower pH. We take ammonium sulfates, I got sulfur in there, and then we want to make sure the pHs are down in the fives on our fertilizer. We add heat carbons to our fertilizer and we balance the different nutrients for certain different crops and things. So we got, I think, 17 or 18 bins at our fertilizer facility of different things that we can blend and mix together. But I think it's just what makes it work. I said, we're treating our soils like you treat a cow. You want to get 100 pounds of milk? This is what you got to feed them. You want to go 200 bushel corn on an organic farm? This is what you feed it. Well, that was the other thing, was a lesson that should be learned last year. See, when I was a kid, and the still, story still goes on, half my life is, is, is breaking myths. But the myth out here that anytime you plant corn, any beyond the 10th of May, you lose a bushel yield a day. Uh -huh. And I said, that's right, that's good. I said, but corn has a potential for 500 bushel. No, now it's 640 bushel, yeah. record yields. <laughs> yeah. So I said, you're worried about losing, I plant 10 days later, I lose 10 bushel. But I started out with 600, yeah. and I'm only getting 150. So I said, I've already lost more than my fair share, so what, why not just plant later? Why would you be in such a hurry to plant? See, we got to plant late because not only do I want this to grow, but not only that, but that seed's got to come out and go fast to get ahead of the weeds and stuff. And so we, we do plant late. I said, last year, there's our neighbors, some of those guys planted at the end of May and had the best corn crops they ever had. This year, they planted in April. I said, why didn't you put a cover crop in there and, and get the benefits of the cover crop and put, put a new system in place? See, years ago, if you had, oh, I got to go 105, 110-day corn. See, our neighbors do. We grow 95-day corn. 
and plant later. See, it go, 79 day corn has got potential for 200 bushel nowadays. Mm -hmm. Genetically, they moved, that's where genetics fits in. They moved that stuff from years ago, 79 day corn, you'd get 80 bushel. Well now, yeah, that stuff really, we can grow 85 day corn and you can get 200 bushel corn on it. Mm -hmm. And so we grow 95 day corn because we want to harvest it early to get a chance to get our cover crops in because it was wet last fall. Mm -hmm. And not only that, we don't have to do as much field drying and then we're going to plant later. So I said, so I want to get it out early and I want to plant later and we can still get 200, our goal was 200 bushel corn. This can yield, there was 200 bushel corn in that next strip right down there last year. This will yield 200 bushel corn. So if you look at that whole system, and now I got all these minerals in this carbon biological cycle. So I don't know, we probably could have talked about a lot more things. That's our farming system. Uh, I was very fortunate in my career. To, as I work with a lot of farms, and I've been quite influential on a lot of people around the planet. And I am quite honored to see more and more people getting involved. That's why I want to be the example to say what's achievable. It's not easy to get farms to take the risk and change. Thanks to Gary Zimmer for explaining his approach to biological farming. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakeurlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.